your hand, we'll bring you a Bible or a quick download an app or open it up uh, and get pretty much to the middle of Leviticus. We're going to be in chapter 17. Now, if you've been with us through Leviticus or you just remember last time you read it, it is a book that is a little bit gory. It is a book that might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable if you imagined it. If you have an illustrated Bible that is honest at all and illustrates the book of Leviticus, there's going to be a lot of red ink in those illustrations because there's blood being spilled, there's blood being sprinkled, splattered, collected, poured. There's blood all over the book of Leviticus. And I think for most of us it's natural to feel a little bit um, maybe queasy, at the sight of blood, I think even our culture, at least in the past, has recognized the inappropriateness of blood. And so the old-time cowboy shows and movies where the cowboy shoots the bad guy and the bad guy goes, oh, and does three turns before he falls on the floor, you know, there's no blood there because that's a little bit too much for TV. The shooting can be there, the death can be there, the killing can be there, but don't put the blood there. Uh, when they rate games for kids... There can be shooting, you can shoot people in the head, you can shoot people in the chest, you can use knives and, and blades, but if there's no blood and it looks a little cartoony, you know, you can get away with it. But as soon as those things uh, are illustrated with the splattering or smearing or spilling or pouring out of blood, it suddenly becomes rated M, mature. It suddenly becomes rated R, restricted. Because there's something about the spilling of blood that is not just gross, it's not just that it's nasty, but there's a reason why it's gross and there's a reason why it's nasty. I think it's built into us as human beings. If you love, this is just a caution that I didn't really plan on saying, but we can always edit it out. Uh, if you love slasher flicks, that, that might be a problem. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm going to see 30 people just get utterly slashed. Let's, let's eat some popcorn. That we should recoil at the loss of life. Even if we watch war movies and we think it's a just war, it shouldn't be like, yeah, yeah, shoot them. There should be this uh, feeling in your gut at the loss of life. Leviticus 17 addresses that directly. And the reason why is because you've got 16 chapters of the correct way to spill blood. And you might start seeing in the Israelites a development of a culture that is okay with spilling blood. Spill it here, spill it there, we spill it everywhere. It's all the time anyway, and we're killing animals that are innocent, but, and you start getting callous to it, and he doesn't want them to be callous toward the loss of life. 16 chapters of commanding them to spill blood, and then one chapter ongoing, but don't you dare do it flippantly, don't you dare lose that gut-wrenching feeling that you have when you spill blood. Blood matters to God because blood represents life and life belongs to God. Because life belongs to God and life is represented by blood, therefore blood is sacred because blood belongs to God. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 17. At first you might go, hey, uh, I'm not even a farmer, I'm not a hunter, I don't spill blood, how is this relevant? Oh, very relevant, because it speaks to your view of life, what blood represents. 
We're seeing a turn in the book of Leviticus. Like I said, 15 chapters on sacrifices and purifications and priesthood. Why? Because that is God establishing how you get in a relationship with me. It costs life. You deserve death. So to be in a relationship with the author of life, life needs to be handled through death for you. You have life because something else took death. Therefore, you can be back in relationship with the author of life. That's the first team, first 15 chapters. And then chapter 16 is kind of a hinge. That's the atonement, the ultimate sacrifice that is put on one goat to kill one goat that goes away, the scapegoat that takes away all the sin. Everything you've ever done, anything that can ever keep you out of a relationship with God is put on that goat, and that goat goes away and takes it away forever. And then chapter 17 through 27 focus on holiness. Now that you're in your relationship with God, how you're supposed to live that out. Some people put chapter 17 with the first half because they're like, well, he's still talking about sacrifices, he's still talking about blood, but he's talking about how you're supposed to live in light of the fact that blood belongs to God. So these, this last half of Leviticus is very practical. How should you live? Holiness uh, for the person who's in relationship with God. So chapter 17 starts off like this tells us there is a proper place to do a sacrifice, there's a proper person to sacrifice to, and if you don't do it in the proper place to the proper person, you'll get a proper judgment. Those are the first nine verses. Let's look at it together. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any of if any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, so this is the proper place, outside the camp or to the entrance of the tent of meeting, to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. Okay? If you don't do that, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood. And that man shall be cut off from among his people. You only need to shed blood in the light of a sacrifice that is done in the right place. If you don't do it in the right place, you didn't do a proper sacrifice, you just shed blood. And what do I do with the person that shed blood? You're guilty. But it was just an ox. You are guilty. I created that ox. That's my life. What happens to that person? He shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. There's the proper punishment. Now, some, some people think that means cut off by killing them, execution, or cut off by ex, excommunicating the person. But you have to remember the times in which they live. If somehow you were banned from, you know, DuPage County, you can go live in Cook County, right? I mean, that, that, this is not those times. If you're banned from being one, a, 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 a part of one nation, you're suddenly a sojourner, and uh, very likely you die. You're going to go knock on the Canaanites' door? Hey, sorry about that. My bad. Um, good luck. Look at verse 5. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices, that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. We covered the significance of those phrases early on. 
So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to the improper person, right? So to the goat demons after whom they whore. They shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. So God knew that the people of Israel will have a penchant, a desire, a leaning toward other gods. We've got Yahweh. That's great. Yahweh kind of covers this area, but what about the goat demon? What about these other gods that represent other areas of life? And they, they cheat on God. They commit adultery on God with those things. And so he doesn't want them sacrificing anything anywhere else without bringing it to the Lord as a sacrifice to him specifically. Verse 8 and 9, And you shall say to them, Any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. So God wants you to take, or wants them to take life seriously because life belongs to him. If you kill something, that better be a sacrifice to me. And if it's not a sacrifice to me, what was it for? Don't do it. Don't sacrifice animals to something else. Don't just kill them egregiously. They are lives. And then he presses it further because it goes beyond just sacrifice. You might go, well, what about when we eat? What about killing animals just to eat? What about hunting? He speaks to that. You can do those things, but you better not mishandle the blood because the blood represents life. Now, we need to do this building up before we start applying it. We need to understand what this text is doing before we can understand what it's supposed to do in us. So let's, let's let it do its work. What about these other situations? How much does God care about life? Well, in 10 through 18, he covers a couple of different scenarios, like eating blood. If any one of the house of Israel, verse 10, or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Listen to what he's doing there. Blood is precious. Yes, we're spilling a lot of it. The only reason why we're spilling it through the first 15, uh, 16 chapters of this book is because you need it to live. So a death is taken so that a life can be kept. A death is given so a life can be preserved. That is not something flippant. You should, every time you sacrifice that animal, he's telling the Israelites, every time you sacrifice that animal, you should recognize, ooh, that that should be me. And the only reason why it's not me is because something else takes death for me. You start losing that if you're just slashing animals every chance you get and then drinking their blood. Ha ha, you know, cheers, blood. Like, no, 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 no. It is blood for atonement, verse 11. Blood is supposed to make you think of atonement. Verse 13, anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. Okay, the text doesn't say this, but I'm just reminded of Genesis chapter 4 when Cain kills his brother Abel 
and Abel's blood is spilled out on the ground, and God says, oh, Cain, where's your brother, right? And he tells Cain, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. It's almost like God is saying, even when you hunt an animal and the blood is spilt, at least do it the honor of covering the dirt so that blood isn't crying out for justice. It's still a life. I think one of the reasons why, uh, I don't know, owning pets, visiting zoos at least, having some kind of appreciation for animals and beasts, is to instill in you the thing that God is uh, trying to communicate in these verses, and that is caring for life. He even thinks that the death of animals communicates something, and so hunters have to hunt in a certain way in ancient Israel to communicate that blood is for atonement. I'm not spilling this blood for atonement, so let me cover it so that it's not crying out to God for justice. I think that's the implication there. It says, verse 14, for the life of every creature is its blood, its blood is its life. The implication is, and I care about life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off, and every person who eats what dies of itself and what is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening, he, then he shall be clean." But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity, his sin, his trespass. What's the trespass? You came across roadkill, and you weren't able to drain its blood appropriately. And because the blood wasn't handled appropriately, and you just ate it like a snack, because you didn't care about the blood issue, uh, you're unclean. You don't have to be cut off from your people. You need to clean up. And so you see that God covers a few different scenarios to communicate to them that he cares about blood. And the reason why he cares about blood is not because God is gross and disgusting. Blood equals life. And God cares about life. You see it as an important chapter coming on the heels of all these commands to kill animals. You might think, like, I guess God doesn't care about animals. No, he does. He does. It's just necessary for atonement. Sin is a life and death matter. Even when we commit sins that we think are, they're not so egregious, they're not so bad, they need to be covered by death because otherwise we would be cut off and we would experience death. That is the value of life. Therefore, life is valued by God. Life is holy. It's set apart because it's God's and not ours to do whatever we want with. The life of animals, the life of humans. We don't do whatever we want with it because it's God's. God is jealous for it, and he demands that we respect it. He demands that we honor life because it belongs to him. Now, as we think about how this applies to us today, it, like the rest of Leviticus, especially the second half of this book, we have to do some work to figure out, okay, how, does, how exactly does this apply to us today? The first question that might pop in your mind is, can I eat blood? Can I eat a piece of meat? It's rare. <laughs> I squeeze it with my fork. I see some red come out. Like, can I eat that? Well, the New Testament declares that all food is clean. God gives that in a vision to Peter. But prior to that uh, vision, Jesus said it plainly in, uh, in the Gospels, that all food is clean. But if you read the Old Testament and you're like, man, but blood represents life and it just strikes your conscience to eat it, well, then don't eat it then. That's okay. That's okay. 
respect your conscience on that level. But I think what we need to do is go underneath that to find out what is the point of the law about eating blood? What is the point about hunting and covering blood? Like if you go hunting now, do you have to cover it up? I, I don't think so because it's tied to clean, unclean laws, and we don't live under those specific laws about ritual cleanness and uncleanness. Why? Because through the atonement of Jesus Christ, you are made clean. So how does it apply? Well, we can think about what it means by a couple of different pieces in the text. I want to point you to verse 7 and verse 11. Verse 7 connects it with idolatry. Verse 7 says that when you take your sacrifice and you don't bring it to the altar, in those days, most likely the reason why you're doing it is not to eat it and not to have a dinner meal. It's not because you're hunting. It's because you're whoring after some other demon, some other god, some other idol, some other carved image. You're betraying God. You're cheating on God because you're taking what belongs to atonement and you're taking it somewhere else. So verse 7 connects the problem with idolatry. So there's one point of connection between blood and idolatry. And then there's another point of connection in Verse 11, he tells us why blood is important when he says the life of the flesh is in the blood. So it's about life. I have given it to you. I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The reason why he doesn't want you uh, spilling blood outside of connecting it to a sacrifice to him is because blood spilling outside of atonement in front of him is sacrilegious. And when I first read that, I thought, hmm, those are two reasons. And then I thought, well, actually, they're the same reason, aren't they? Because the reason why people would whore after other idols is because they would find some measure of atonement through them. Oh, sorry, God of fertility. Sorry, I want to have a baby. Let me sacrifice something to you so I can be fertile. Oh, sorry, God of agriculture. I messed up, but I really need rain for my crop, so let me sacrifice an idol to you. I worship Yahweh too, but I need something else. No, you don't, God is saying. All you need is atonement from me, and I handle everything else. You are seeking atonement in other ways by sacrificing to other idols. So verse 7 and verse 11 are very much connected. Because when we seek atonement or things that we need to please God from things outside of God himself, that's idolatry. So we dishonor life when we worship something else and when we kill for it. When we replace God on the throne of our hearts and minds, we replace him with something else, we sometimes come to the place where we will even kill for that other idol. Now you might say, well, how, how, we don't really worship idols. You remember when Jesus said you can't serve two masters can't serve God and money. you got to pick one. <laughs> you can serve God, but you can't serve money and love God. Well, what is that? That's an idol. That means your bank account can be your idol. The love of money. So, so we see in Scripture that idols are not always carved little statues that you bow down in front of and burn incense in front of and bring sacrifices to. An idol is anything that you sacrifice to instead of God to secure something, to secure something for yourself, to make life better for yourself. 
And sometimes we do kill for it. And you might ask, well, how, how, how do we have an idol such that we would kill for it? When your idol is yourself, you'll kill anything for it. Even yourself. We think about the difficult issue of suicide. And ask, okay, is, is suicide wrong? Yeah, suicide is wrong. Why is suicide wrong? Well, it's a lot of reasons why it's, it's wrong. The people that you leave behind, the kids you leave behind, the people that love you that leave behind, writing a little note doesn't help it. But that is not ultimately why it's wrong. Suicide is not ultimately wrong because of the people that you leave hanging. Suicide is ultimately wrong because even your own life is not yours to spill. God says don't kill animals, and he doesn't say don't kill them because life belongs to that ox. He says, no, that belongs to me. So you better be killing it because you're bringing it to me. Otherwise, don't do it. Nobody committing suicide is thinking, how do I give myself to God? Let me do it through suicide, unless they're part of some ridiculous cult. shouldn't have to say this. If any spiritual leader asks you to compromise your own life for a sacrifice to God, it is a cult. Jesus is the sacrifice. We don't add to it. So yes, suicide is difficult. I don't think it's an unforgivable sin. I don't think it's the unforgivable sin. Can a Christian commit suicide? Yeah. Can a Christian sin? Yes. Now you may not understand how a Christian can get to such a dark place that they would compromise their own life, but it's a sin. And Jesus' atonement covers all sins or it does not cover all sins. I think the unforgivable, blasphemous sin that Jesus talks about is the refusal of that atonement. But if you accept that atonement, then it covers our sins, even the bad ones. But I don't want to make light of something like suicide. Ultimately, you're worshiping yourself. I can't take my life anymore. I don't like my life anymore. And I would be more comfortable if I didn't have to live this life anymore. Let me take me out of it. Let me play God and take me out of my own situation. That's why it's wrong. Bible has all these verses teaching us how to embrace suffering, not kill ourselves to get out of suffering. If you're in a dark place and you wrestle with those thoughts, you need to talk to somebody. And as a church, as, uh, as members of this church, I hope I can speak for all of our members when I say that we will come alongside you and support you, but we're not going to encourage suicide. I think the same applies when it's assisting the suicide of someone else. PAS, physician-assisted suicide, or euthanasia, if any see a difference between the two. But someone is suffering, they don't have quality of life anymore, they feel like they don't want to go on with the suffering and the pain anymore, and they are requesting that a physician or someone else assist them in their suicide. Is that wrong? Well... Who owns the life? God does. And we don't get to play value games by going, well, how good is the life? How nice is the life? How pleasant is the life? Not pleasant enough? Whose scale are we using? Who gets to rate it? If somebody loses a job, kill them? Okay, how about paralysis? Now? How do you discern the line between not worth living anymore? 
the real answer to that is don't. God holds that skill. He is the owner of life. Life is sacred because it is his. It is not yours to take if it's your life. It's not yours to take if it's your cousin's life or someone else. Now, I do see a distinction between assisted suicide and refusing treatment. There's a line somewhere there, and I know we wrestle with where is that line sometimes. I think there's a line between trying our best to protect life, and then there's a line somewhere where it's crossed where we're no longer protecting life, we're trying to cheat death. So we're not talking about the label DNR, do not resuscitate. We're not talking about the heart-wrenching decision a family sometimes has to make to pull a plug when uh, somebody's death has completely overtaken them, and the only reason why they're still breathing is because of technology. Those are really difficult decisions. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about death hasn't come upon you, but suffering has. You're experiencing a lack of comfort, mental, physical, both. But death hasn't come upon you. You just want to bring death upon yourself to get out of the suffering. I don't want to make light of the suffering. I'm standing up here pretty whole. I can walk, I can talk, I can speak, I can go exercise. I don't want to make light of suffering. But when I look at a passage like this, it's screaming out, you protect life. You honor life because life belongs to God. It is sacred. So you don't spill it. Outside of God's purview. I think a bigger issue, as I think back, I, I, I don't think I've, I definitely have not addressed this enough. I try to just stick with the text, and when the, what the text points to, I, I stick to that. I think this has everything to do with the issue of abortion. A few days ago, uh, the House Bill 314 was passed that makes uh, uh, abortion a, a felony for the doctor that performs the abortion in Alabama. And this uh, bill bans almost all abortions. Say, this is good news. State Representative Rich Wingo, uh, in talking about this issue, he said that the Tuscaloosa Abortion Clinic performs 3,500 abortions a year. One abortion clinic. He said, in Tuscaloosa, we have more abortions than births. As the bill was uh, being presented and being passed by majority vote, some of the state representatives tried to filibuster, and you may have seen this video go viral. The state representative, Rogers, had some comments to share And I don't want to pick on Rogers. It's a voice that represents thinking. He's just saying what people are thinking. When he says things like, hey, look, some kids are just unwanted. You either kill them now or you kill them later in the electric chair. Kill them now or kill them later. He said some parents can't handle a child with problems. It could be retarded. His words. Kill it. I think it betrays their understanding of things when he go ahead and he calls them kids. 
this comes out of a politician's mouth? Some kids, he doesn't say, he's not even bothering with the word fetus or unborn. Kids, some kids are unwanted, some kids are retarded. So kill them now. You ask yourself, well, how, how, do, how do we do that? How does that connect to idolatry? Well, think about what he's saying. What if the mom doesn't want the child? What if the mom doesn't want to have to put up with paralysis or missing arms or missing feet or missing legs? The mom doesn't want to put up with that. That's going to cramp her style. That's going to interrupt her career path. So who's first in that scenario? Well, she is. See, the reason why we don't have carved images and idols to bow down to much anymore, I mean, many cultures and many people still do, but as a whole, that's pretty foreign to us in this country. And the reason why is because we don't need carved images when we're the image. You don't need carved images when there's mirrors all over the house and mirrors that can fold down from the top of your car. You don't need to look at a carved image when you have a phone in your pocket that you carry everywhere that has a reverse, a reverse angle on it to take pictures of your own image. We don't need to carry around incense sticks when we have selfie sticks. What is the point of following a carved image when you can garner your own followers on Instagram? Now, I'm not saying owning an app and using Instagram or using Facebook or taking selfies is sinful. What I'm saying is we, have, we live in a culture where it is so easy to worship images that we don't need carved images. We have ourselves. And the argument that we often hear for choice or for the ability to abort children, to kill them, has got self on the throne of our hearts. I'll try to do this quickly, but maybe it's helpful. You may have heard of the acronym SLED. Uh, I heard this in a Kevin DeYoung sermon where he was handling this, this exact passage, uh, which is from another book that's not his. But the acronym SLED represents the arguments for abortion, size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependence. You can abort a fetus because it's so tiny, it's so small, but that doesn't make sense. What about people who struggle with dwarfism? Kill them? Is a toddler less valuable than a teenager? Smaller. Is someone who's 4'10 less valuable than someone who's 6'10? Well, that doesn't make sense. Well, then it can't be size. It can't be level of development because that would be based on abilities. Some people can reach the top shelf and other people can't. Kill them? Can't be level of abilities. Toddlers can't do the same thing that teenagers can do. We don't kill them. Can't be environment. Six inches out of the womb, you can't kill it. Move it a few inches, just change location into the womb, now you can kill it. How does that become life? How does not life become life because of a change of location? And then finally, degree of development. If you take it to its logical conclusion when you say, well, the child can't do anything. The child, you know, kill it because it it's not able to do anything. It's not viable outside the womb. Are toddlers viable? Just lock your toddler up in the house for three months. Will you come back to a, an alive toddler? 
No. Well, then, why would you protect the life of toddlers? Why would you not protect the life of infants? I can add one to this. Oftentimes, people will talk about quality of life, and I think that's what the senator was getting to. What kind of quality of life? The the kind of person that ends up committing crimes and ends up being in an electric chair anyway. The kind of person that grows up in an environment surrounded by drugs and surrounded by murder, surrounded by rape, surrounded by gangs. What kind of life is that? I don't know, my wife's life, for one. You don't kill a baby because you're prognosticating about the quality of its life. You might go, what? (laughs) You know, it feels like we're getting a little bit political. Well, we're not. We're getting theological. We're getting biblical because the Bible talks about the quality of life, the sanctity of life, and that's, that's at the heart of the issue. When you read verses like verse 11, when you read verses like verse 7 that talk about the things that we whore after, it's, it's ourselves. Verse 11, that there's only atonement in one place and we don't take life for other reasons, that should push us to a place where we see the value of life. Life is sacred, so we must honor it. I want to close with just a couple of comments really quickly. We don't want to just honor life by protecting the lives of the unborn, but we want to honor life by what we do with those lives when they are brought to birth. So we don't want to rail against single moms for being tempted to make these decisions, and then when they decide to have the baby, not support them and not bring them help. Tell people that you shouldn't commit suicide and don't help people that are depressed. We want to be a supporting church. We want to be a church that honors life, not just politically by hoping that a a ban goes through, but in real life to support people that are struggling. I think we can all probably do a better job of that. The easy one is fill the coin bank. Seriously, I don't care about those plastic cubes. Why do I keep bringing them up? I think it goes toward a cause. So go flip your couches upside down, unscrew the the car seats in your vehicle, get the change, throw it in there. Skip McDonald's for a day, and put it in a cube and help an organization that is filled with volunteers that are dedicating their lives full-time to help moms that are making the right decision. We can ramp it up from there. Have you ever considered fostering a child? Have you ever considered adopting a child? These are ways that we can help. And there are things in between. Can you come alongside single moms and ask them how you can help? Can you help them with meals? Can you help them find jobs? That takes teamwork, and we need to start thinking about those things and talking about those things. We want to discuss those things in our growth groups. We want to be a church that people who come think that their lives are not worth living anymore, that they can come to us, and that we can actually do something with this hope that we say we have, that we can explain where hope comes from and what brings value to life. That value in life is not measured by circumstances or ease or comfort, but something else that was purchased actually through pain and sacrifice. Finally, we're reminded again of that passage in Genesis 4 when God tells Cain that the blood of his brother cries out for justice from the ground. And then the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus' spilled blood speaks a better word than Abel's blood. Abel's blood cries out for justice, but Jesus' blood grants that justice. 
I don't know everybody's story in here this morning, but if you have contemplated suicide before or you maybe even participated in euthanasia, the death of somebody else, maybe you've aborted a baby. Is there hope for you? Yes. Jesus spilled blood provides atonement that covers every sin. Every sin is laid on the goat of Jesus, and he takes it away. There is forgiveness, and there is assurance of full forgiveness for you. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. That's hope. We offer that hope to others. We also want to be people who recognize that God's blood Shed, the Jesus' blood shed for us gives us the ability to care for people who are struggling. It's no mistake that Jesus tells his audience, I know you've heard it before, thou shalt not kill. And what does he say is underneath that law. Maybe you didn't physically kill somebody, but there's hatred in your heart. We don't want to be a hateful people. We want to be a loving people. Not killing people in our hearts, but doing the opposite. Coming alongside the hurting people, people in difficult circumstances, and giving them the hope of the gospel so that they too can honor life. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful to you for making things certain and clear in Scripture, like the value of life, and that life is not only valuable when it's comfortable, but it's valuable in the ownership tag that has your name on it. Lord, as a church, help us to not only lobby for legislation and not only be happy when the legislation we're going for passes, but to help those that are in difficult situations, those that are wrestling with the question of life's value. Help us to demonstrate value to them. Help them to feel valued by the way that we value them and that they are made in God's image. That image isn't there to worship. That image isn't there to be first. That image is to reflect the one who's first. What a glorious thing. How valuable we are in our imageness. We are mirrors for your glory. Help us to convey that. Help us to help people see hope in that. We need your assistance. We need your grace to demonstrate grace to others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me and close in a song together? This world is not my home. I'm here but for a moment, it's all I've ever known, but this world is not my home, the fight is not my own, these burdens aren't my future, 
the empty tomb has shown. I am bound for glory. I am free because I'm bound. I am bound for heaven's gate. Where my feet will land on holy ground, I am bound for glory. The saving work is done, and death is not my ending. My God has overcome. I am bound for glory. I am free because I'm bound. I am bound for heaven's gate. Where my feet will stand on holy ground, I am bound for glory. pain, hurt, and shame, gone when Jesus calls my name, endless 